This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. In 1977, director Steven Spielberg and star Richard Dreyfuss gave the world an eerie exposition of an imaginary visitation from the stars. In 2022, we take a return trip to Orkney. The film is Close Encounters of the Third Kind. The whiskey is Highland Park Magnus. And we'll review them both. This is the The Film and Whiskey Podcast. Welcome to the Film and Whiskey Podcast, where each week we review a classic movie and a glass of whiskey. I'm Bob Book. I'm Brad G. And this week we are continuing our mini series on Steven Spielberg, filling in some blind spots in our reviews with the 1977 film Close Encounters of the Third Kind. What what happened? What happened in the first kind or the second yeah, kind? Yeah, that's what I, I was immediately going <laughs> to jump into here. You know, Spielberg is a guy who carries some weight around Hollywood when he can name his movie Close Encounters of the Third Kind. And nobody bats an eye. All of our parents went to see this movie. They talk about it like this is just a normal thing to call your movie. I mean, it barely fits on a marquee. But because it's a Spielberg movie, it's just, you know, accepted. Yeah, it's almost as long as the assassination of Jesse James by the (laughs) coward Robert Ford. (laughs) I was just listening to somebody complain a couple weeks ago about the movie E.T. Because the title of E.T. is E.T. colon the extraterrestrial. But E.T. stands for extraterrestrial. Right. So the title is really extraterrestrial, <laughs> the extraterrestrial. That'd be like calling it the NFL League. Right. <laughs> or the NBA Association. Exactly. <laughs> so I guess what we're coming in, we're coming in a little hot today saying Spielberg. You suck at naming You got to work on the titles a little bit, man. <laughs> I would say Jaws. Short, snappy. Everybody knows what it's going to be about. Yeah. Not this one. Not as much. (laughs) Bob, I'm really excited to talk about Close Encounters because this is one of those movies that I've heard of. I know it's like famous, but nobody I know really like has much experience or history with it. And the only thing I know about it is those five tones. Yep. And that was because I loved this video that came out when I was in college called John Williams is the Man. Do you remember that YouTube mm-hmm. video? I, I think you showed it to me, yeah. I'm sure that I did. And the the opening of that montage is the... Dun, 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 dun. Yep. And that's all you knew. That's it. That That is everything. I mean, I knew that it was about aliens. Sure. And, you know, close encounters. Sure. Of the third kind. Uh, not the second. <laughs> not, <laughs> not the fourth. Three, my lord. I feel like this movie exists in a very weird spot that, you know, there are other movies like this where everyone regards this movie pretty highly. You know, it I, I believe it was on the first version of the AFI Top 100. I might be wrong about that. And, and yet it's no one's favorite 
Steven Spielberg movie. And because of that, it's never really brought up in the conversation. It's kind of similar to when you're having like the uh, NBA goat conversations and it's Michael Jordan or LeBron or maybe Kareem. This is kind of the the Magic Johnson or the Larry Bird of Spielberg's catalog <laughs> where everyone agrees. Absolutely. Top 10 all time player. But they're not really in that conversation for best that Spielberg's ever made. So it's what weird. You... It's, it's almost like it suffers for being so good, but not quite being great. Look at you bringing in sports metaphors. Oh, yeah. Might Listen, as well call this the uh, film, whiskey, and basketball podcast now. If there's one thing I've learned from all my public speaking classes, it's that everyone always appreciates a sports metaphor. There's not a single human being who doesn't. Yeah. And it goes over no one's head ever. <laughs> Bob, I, I think that Close Encounters of the Third Kind, if I'm being very honest, kind of deserves where it's at. Mm -hmm. Sure. Like, I that I don't know if that's a hot take or not, but... Having watched it now, I, I think I can sit back and just be honest and be like, you know, it's solid, but Spielberg has more memorable films and just honestly better films. I agree with that, but I think that there's also something really interesting about coming into this directly after Jaws. And I mean, for us in, in terms of reviewing it, because yeah. Jaws has this reputation of being possibly Spielberg's best film. You know, it's been ranked as the best horror movie of all time, but in a number of areas or in a number of places. And so we come into that movie and it's it has to live up to this almost Citizen Kane like reputation. And then you come into this movie and no one's talking about it and everyone agrees. Yeah, it's it's a good movie. It's a solid movie. And I came away from this movie, even with all of the flaws that I still think are present, saying, oh, my gosh, this is so much better than I remember it being. It is super ambitious. And Spielberg is taking massive swings, both with the scope and scale of this movie. And also, I think some of the things that he's trying to communicate emotionally that just weren't present in his filmography to this point. So it's a way better movie than I think a lot of people give it credit for, even though we all agree it's good. I was say, is uh, is Spielberg trying to be Christopher Nolan before Christopher Nolan? Mm. If uh, only there was somebody swinging. in this movie just screaming Murph over and over. <laughs> That's what we were missing here. <laughs> I would say the only thing that keeps this from being because, as you said, it's a swing for the fences in the way Nolan does. But the thing that keeps it from ever being a Nolan film is that like 90 percent of the movie is not exposition. You're right. <laughs> There's actually probably about 7% of the movie that's exposition in this. Although for for a good stretch of the movie, we are cutting between three competing storylines. So it really might Ooh. be it really might be the blueprint oh, for Chris that. Nolan. All right. Before we get any further talking about the film, it's time for us to throw over to Brad Explains. This is the part of the podcast where Brad breaks down the film that he has just seen often for the first time. And I believe we have our first first time viewing of season six. Is that is that true? That is true. All I right. had seen Jaws before. All right, Brad, I'm going to put 60 seconds on the clock. You have to explain the plot of Close Encounters. Can you do it? Aliens. There's scientists <laughs> trying to figure stuff out and there's bright lights and people are getting sunburns and <laughs> and Richard Dreyfus is uh, he 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 experiences it and then he goes kind of crazy and he's obsessed with these aliens and this little kid gets abducted and his mom becomes obsessed with aliens and then there's people in India who are singing this cool 
note sequence and it gives them coordinates where they build a landing strip for aliens. And then Dreyfus and somehow connects with the mom who lost her son and they they go to see the aliens. And then there's aliens and they're playing electronic uh, keyboard to the aliens. And then they got long arms and then they're short and childlike like Ewoks. And then Dreyfus goes off with them and the little kid gets returned to the mom. And the scientists are all happy. The end. The end. <laughs> yeah, that, was, uh, that wasn't so much <laughs> an explanation of the plot as just this happened and then this happened and then this happened. But it kind of makes sense for the way this movie plays out. I was going to say, that's kind of how I felt like the movie was experienced by me. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So I, I have a feeling that we're going to come out in slightly different places on this film. If, if you uh, had to put a number on that slight difference, Bob, numerically, what do you think that difference will be? Oh, in terms of our scores? I'm just, I'm just you know, a number. I think we're going to come guess. out 1.5 points apart from each other. Ooh, bold move, Cotton. <laughs> Before we get into talking about the film, we do want to say, if this is your first time listening to the show, or if you've been with us from the very beginning, we would appreciate your support. Click like, click follow, subscribe to the show, give us a five-star review on your favorite podcast platform. And if you really deep in the bottom of your heart love us if you would like to support us financially you can jump on patreon.com slash film whiskey there are three different levels or tiers that you can support us at all of them get you access to our special patron only discord server which we have an absolute blast on every single day uh so go check it out patreon.com slash film whiskey okay brad let's get into the film and i want to start by reminding the listeners that we are slightly divided from what I can tell on this movie. And I say that because I want to start with the beginning of the film. I put this movie on, having kind of given you a brief warning that it's not my favorite Spielberg film, I don't remember a lot about it other than that it's kind of a slog. And I have to say, for the first, I don't know, half hour of the movie, when you're just kind of given these small vignettes of things happening globally and how aliens are making contact with people, but they don't really come out and say that it's aliens and you're you're solving the mystery as the viewer. I was hooked. I thought it was just a perfectly edited, wonderfully shot, kind of intriguing, mysterious movie. And it really, really had me for the first part of the film. Did that work for you? You know, it. It jumped around so much that I actually struggled for a little bit. Hmm. I, I think that the opening scene where they're finding these airplanes uh, and they're, you know, that have been disappeared for 20 years at this point, And they're talking to the old man who was sunburnt. I really enjoyed that opening scene. Once they got to uh, Dreyfus's character, uh, uh, Roy and his family, I really started struggling because at that point, it felt like it just started dragging. Mm. And, I, and I think that's going to be a key for this whole movie is that the pacing of this movie is super awkward. Like there's certain moments where it's loud and there there's, you know, a sandstorm ripping through and people are speaking in French and English and trying to and Spanish and trying to translate. And they're, you know, they're yelling over the storm and. And then all of a sudden you have, you know, Dreyfus yelling at his kids. Um, I, I will say the the line that he gave his son about 
how old are you again? And he goes, 10. He goes, if you want to, if you want to live to see 11, you're going to go see Pinocchio tomorrow <laughs> night. <laughs> that, that just got me. But the, the pacing just felt off. It's like we had these really fast, rapid cuts in the desert. And then we just sat with Roy and his family learning nothing hmm. about these encounters for like a solid 15 minutes. And that's just something I really struggled with. See, I didn't have as much of an issue with that element of it because Spielberg does the same thing here that he will do in E.T. a few years later, which is until he establishes that the aliens are friendly and benevolent, he constructs it as if it could go either way. And so he really builds the movie in a suspenseful, almost horror movie kind of way. And that's what I really love about the beginning of E.T. and the beginning of this film is that all you're given are these kind of breadcrumbs that something mysterious is happening and we might be in danger. And then you do this kind of hard cut to this guy living in the middle of nowhere suburbia who is blissfully unaware of what's going on. And I thought that those first few scenes with Dreyfus encountering the aliens you know, when when the beam comes down and gives him the sunburn and he starts kind of, you know, like tornado chasing it across the cornfields, those scenes were so compelling. And if we can just jump into Dreyfus at this point, having watched Jaws last week and watching this movie this week, God bless it, man. Richard Dreyfus is such a good actor. He is so good in this movie, Brad. Well, first off, before I get to Dreyfus, I just have to say. After three and a half years in this podcast, Bob, I'm glad that you've realized that the way to draw a movie near to my heart is to compare it to E.T. Mm-hmm. That is that that just that does it, man. My point will... stands, sir. <laughs> On the other hand, Dreyfus is the best part of this movie. Oh, by, like by a long shot. Yeah. By a country mile. I, like and that's not to say I didn't like the other people like Francois Truffaut. Uh, who plays the French scientist. I really liked his performance. I I thought he did a really good job. Um, I liked Terry Garr as Ronnie. Um, I did not like Melinda Dillon as the mom Jillian, I think is her name. Really? You did not like her? No, she was terrible. Oh, interesting. Uh, Dreyfus, though, was far and away the best actor in this film. So you've called out the pacing of the movie. I don't have as much of an issue with the pacing, but I will say that this movie is very, very ambitious. And I've already said that a couple times, you know, the scale of the movie, it's going all over the globe. Uh, it's immediately more Spielbergy than Jaws was it, like it has all of the hallmarks of what we have come to accept as a Spielberg movie. The camera is moving more. Like I noticed it immediately in that first sequence when they're in Mexico and they go to talk to the old man who's just kind of sitting outside of whatever, you know, the little restaurant or whatever it is. And there's a it cuts to a shot of, I think, Bob Balaban or maybe it's Francois Truffaut and the camera pushes in on them. And I'm like, oh, the these shots weren't in Jaws. He was working with what he had in Jaws. And now they've said, here's money, Steven Spielberg. Do what you would like with the camera. And. Man, does this movie look great or what? Spielberg really knows what he's doing with the camera. Yeah, you you definitely feel like he is getting a hold of himself as far as like what he wants out of cinematography, you know, because I believe that is Jaws his first feature length film. No. So he had done a feature length movie on TV called Duel, which is 
really good. And then he did one theatrical theatrically released movie called The Sugarland Express and then Jaws. So he's okay. I mean, he's still very fresh at this point. Yeah, I was going to say you you can tell that he's getting his feet under him when it comes to how he wants a camera to move. Mm-hmm. And you're right in saying that he doesn't move off of it very far from here on out. There was a shot that I thought reminded me strongly of Schindler's List when uh, they are loading up the train to get people away from Devil's oh, yeah. Tower. Yeah. And uh, Jillian and Roy find each other in the middle of it. And there's just something about this crowd kind of kind of milling about, kind of being forced around. And the way he draws attention to them at the center of this sea of humanity just felt like when the Nazis were like uh, purging the ghettos and like moving them all onto the trains. I was like, man, like y- you can see so many different influences in other films mm-hmm. find their origin here for Spielberg. So now I remember why I was going to why I brought up the whole comment you made about the pacing of the movie. And it's because Spielberg wrote this movie. Uh, He has some screenwriting background. He hasn't done it a lot since this movie, but he wrote and directed this film. And for all of the things that I will say work really well about the script, and I think it's a good script, it ultimately becomes four movies in one. And the first part of the movie is this kind of uh, growing mystery around what's happening with the aliens making contact with people. The second part of the movie is when it really settles into the Neary's household in the suburbs. And it's this very moving portrait of a family falling apart because uh, Dreyfus's character has been kind of stricken with these visions that he can't shake. And they're calling him to Devil's Tower and he doesn't know what to do about it. And you watch the disillusion of a family. It gets real heavy for a while there. And then it becomes this kind of not lighthearted, but kind of Indiana Jonesy road trip movie and sneak past the guards and government cover up movie. And then all of a sudden it's this like symphonic fantasia where we're communicating wordlessly with aliens in a very uh, touchy feely kind of way. And then the movie's over. And I think for me, the biggest issue is that the first two parts of this movie really worked for me. And even the third part I think would have worked If the fourth part landed more strongly and Spielberg was really going for something with the end of this film, with the the actual communication with the aliens face to face, that I think he was trying to get at something, I don't know, wordless and spiritual and almost religious. But it doesn't have the gravity and the weight that the end of the movie should have. I don't know if you're with me on that, Brad, but my biggest issue with the movie when it all comes down to it is the end of the film. For me, the the opening mystery segment was slightly poorly paced at points, but overall it it drew me in. I, I like I wanted to know what was happening. The uh, dissolution of Roy Neary's marriage was fascinating, like from the moment when he walks out and he's cleaning things up and he's telling his his son, he's like, hey, like, I'm over it. Don't worry. Like, I, I don't know what came over me. We're good to go. And he's trying to break off this this sculpture that he's made and he breaks it and he looks at it and you see it ignite in his eyes again. Yeah. Like from there to the point where his wife is driving off with the kids, I think is literally perfect cinematography 
like it's a perfect film in those moments. It kind of mm-hmm. in the way that like To Kill a Mockingbird, the courtroom scene is just absolutely perfect. Yeah, yeah. Like I I absolutely love. I literally texted you that like watching Richard Dreyfus slowly lose his mind is like exquisite. Like <laughs> it's just it's great acting, it's great direction. The sound is great. The way the the neighbors all come and just stare at him and he's like ripping apart this chicken wire that's keeping in his neighbor's ducks. Uh, it's it's just it's comedic and funny and dark and I love it. And from there on out, I totally lose interest in the film. Hmm. Like like you said, it's kind of like a buddy road trip. Uh, when you first said that, all it could make me think of was like the Road Two movies with uh, <laughs> Hope and Crosby. <laughs> That's what this was missing. Was a musical number. <laughs> yes, like, we're off Richard Dreyfus. Rescue Barry. <laughs> uh, speaking of Barry, he reminded me so much of Drew Barrymore from ET. Hmm. Like, just absolutely adorable. Like, not a great child actor, but he was exactly what the movie needed him yeah. to be, which was extraordinarily cute. Well, and and it, he's so young that you can tell he's just kind of being coached from off camera. Yeah, but. Spielberg does this really brilliant thing. It's the very first scene with that little boy where he gets woken up out of bed. And again, it's filmed like a horror movie. Like, you don't know what's going on. And he goes downstairs and sees that an alien has basically been in his kitchen and runs out the uh, like the doggy door. And then it comes back in and you hear it come back in. And the camera stays on the little boy as he kind of is figuring out what is this thing in my kitchen? And then he just kind of smiles and it cuts to the next scene. And I'm like, as a parent of young children, I'm like, this is not okay. What's going on with this? (laughs) It is such good filmmaking. And again, it just shows that Spielberg knows how to work with the resources that he has. I actually think that that scene would have been worse with a better child actor because you could have shown more that was going on off screen if you wanted to. And by just leaving the camera on that little kid's face it actually it's so much more terrifying because you don't even know what he's looking at dude and it's also terrifying because he's like similar age to your youngest right now yeah (laughs) and i'm like i can totally see him standing in the kitchen just being like hi (laughs) (laughs) no thank you yeah yeah jesus says no thank you to that (laughs) so i do think again that there are really good elements to this script and I appreciate the ambition. I appreciate that Spielberg is taking big swings. One thing that I noticed beyond the big swings of the script is that he's a really good dialogue writer. There are some really great exchanges in this movie, uh, even some very funny ones. The first time that Roy wants to take his wife up to the kind of bluff that they're all looking over where they saw the spaceships go by and she's asking him, well, what did you see? He goes, it was like an ice cream cone. And she said, what flavor? (laughs) What flavor was it? (laughs) It's a perfect line. I laughed so hard. And I got to give Spielberg credit. I I mean, you don't think about Steven Spielberg, the screenwriter, very often. But I really do think for the most part, this is a good script. Well, and I'll say I I really liked Terry Garr in this. Like when she first came on screen, I honestly wasn't sure if she was like his live in girlfriend or not because she looked a lot younger than him. Uh, but I think that goes back to what we said about Dreyfus <laughs> last week for Jaws. He's that just always he's been just, at least 40. 
Yeah, he came out of the womb looking like he was 40. <laughs> Honestly, uh, I was a little bit confused for a minute because we had just come off of Jaws where he has a, a little bit of a beard. I thought that um, Bob Balaban was Richard Dreyfus. Oh, interesting. For like the first 30 minutes of the movie. And when I saw Roy, I was like, wait a second, is that Dreyfus? I like, just think have... it's I think it's so funny how within the span of four years, he plays a teenager in American Graffiti. And then mm-hmm. he's two years later, he's in Jaws and he's, you know, a grad student or maybe just fresh out of grad school. And then two years after that, he's playing a man with a family that has, you know, preteens in it. And yeah. and the American public was just, yeah, we're going to go with yeah. this. This it, all makes it sense. It totally makes sense. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing to see here. No. But honestly, getting back to Terry Garr, I thought that she gave a really impressive performance. Like she plays a super laid back mom who's trying to keep this family together and is slowly losing her sanity as she watches her husband lose his sanity. I like her performance gave so much weight and just like like gravitas to what was happening to Roy's family Mm -hmm. that I like. I felt it when he was going crazy because it was bouncing off of her. Yeah. I do think that the decision to have her start the movie already disinterested in their marriage, not disinterested, but you know what I mean? Beaten down by their marriage. I do think that kind of affected the performance for me negatively because, you know, you don't want to see the movie where she's going for the Oscar and screaming, why are you doing this to me? But <laughs> I do kind of wish that there was a little bit more of an emotional arc there. Whereas in this movie, it was like she she had already started teetering on the edge of should we end this marriage? And then he does a bunch of crazy stuff and then she leaves, you know. So the, the, the home life stuff really worked for me because you can tell Spielberg's heart is in that. And he's really speaking from experience there. Um, but it worked for me, especially because of what you saw Dreyfus going through the crying in the shower and the breaking down at, you know, when he's, when he's molding his mashed potatoes and they do that shot, the split diopter shot where he's way in the foreground and you see his son in the background crying like that scene got me. That was Dude. just so well done. Speaking of, uh, alien movies with family dinner scenes. Yeah. And you know what I noticed while I was watching it? When Mel Gibson starts breaking down in signs, he's eating like spoonfuls of somebody else's mashed potatoes, too. Yep. Yep. And I, I, I was like, oh, Shyamalan, I didn't realize what you were doing, but it's an homage. References. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Brad, I think we're in a good place on this so far. Lots to love about this movie. It does fall short in some areas. So when we come back from break, I would like to talk a little bit about Spielberg, the person behind the movie, and and how much of himself he put into this. And of the course, man, <laughs> the myth, the legend, the Spielberg. But before <laughs> we get there, let's drink this Highland Park Magnus. What do you say? Let's get to it, Bob. Lately, I've been finding myself pulling whiskeys off the shelf that are consistently unique, uh, ones that tell a good story every time I pop the cork, and I have to say that Doc Swinson's is absolutely top tier when it comes to a fascinating pour. What separates Doc Swinson's from the rest of the pack is their unrelenting goal of always letting the whiskey shine. No matter what whiskey comes through the front door at Doc's, their team of tasters will blend and finish it into something that is deliciously memorable. 
The beautiful thing about a good blended whiskey is that oftentimes, with proper care and attention, they turn into a whiskey that is truly greater than the sum of their parts. Whether you're trying their Alter Ego, Blender's Cut, or Exploratory series, you are guaranteed to have a phenomenal experience with Doc Swinson's whiskey. You can find them online at docswhiskey.com. That's D-O-C-S whiskey.com. All right, everybody, we are here today drinking Highland Park Magnus. Now, this is the second whiskey we are drinking from Highland Park. Last year, we tried their 12-year offering. Uh, We were pretty impressed with that, Bob, and I'm excited to talk about this Magnus. Uh, It is named after their founder, Magnus, I'm going to guess, Yunsen. Okay. Who was a direct descendant of Vikings, uh, settled on Orkney. He started the distillery. That's all cool and fine. What we really need to know is that this Magnus whiskey has been matured in seasoned sherry American oak casks. Um, Wait, I'm sorry. What was it? Say that again. They're using (laughs) sherry seasoned American American oak oak casks. casks. So I think what they did was they took American used American oak casks and they poured like maybe two or three percent of the barrel volume of sherry and they sloshed it around there and there for a while let it sit and then they got rid of the sherry and they put in the whiskey got it so this is their way of getting around you know oh it was aged in sherry casks no no it was aged in ex-bourbon barrels they said screw it we're yes. gonna do it ourselves seasoned <laughs> we seasoned we sherry it's casks, a twofer Bob. <laughs> all right so i will say for the most part, I, I try to pride myself on knowing at least, uh, you know, a decent amount about the whiskeys we drink on this podcast. And Highland Park is just a brand that for as famous as it is, I don't know very much about. And so I saw that we had these two samples, both of which came from our friend Austin at the Bourboneering podcast. Come on, Austin. And I saw Highland Park 12 and I knew that was the entry level version. And then I saw Highland Park Magnus and I just kind of assumed it, this was going to be the barrel proof version or at least like some higher end. And I don't really think it is, Brad. This is only <laughs> 80 proof, I think, and it might be cheaper than the 12 year. Do you remember the Wee Beastie versus the Ardbeg Wee Beastie versus their Ardbeg 12? Yes. Or is it is it Ardbeg 10? Ardbeg 10. Yeah. yeah, 10. I think this is kind of a similar situation Got it. where Magnus is the Wee Beastie and their, you know, 12 is their Ardbeg 10. All right, well, for all that said, Brad, I have to say on the nose, this is very pleasant and it does smell more like your kind of classic entry level single malt scotch. The sherry is very present here in a way that it wasn't on the 12 year. The 12 year had that nice little wisp of peat. This doesn't really have any peat going on. I would say there's probably a little bit of smokiness, but it's definitely more in this sort of like uh, Glenmorangie, you know, uh, nosing vein than it is an art bag or something like that. So yeah, I like it. It's just really different than the 12 year. I think I'll give it a seven and a half on the nose. I'm going to give it a seven out of 10. It, it has some really nice lemon zest mm-hmm. that kind of mixes with a little bit of like a shortbread nose. Yeah. And then like the longer I nose that I got like a little hint of like a cured meat. Um, So I, I liked it. It's just not quite as powerful as the 12 year was last week. Yeah, not as powerful and not as distinctive either. This just kind of has a very, mm-hmm. I don't want to say generic scotch nose, but, you know, generic scotch nose. So 
<laughs> I'm going to get into tasting it. I know you've already tried it. So could you give us your tasting notes while I take a sip? Yeah, I, this honestly had a really nice orange and lemon mix with a little bit of a creamy mouthfeel. It definitely was more viscous than I expected it to be. Hmm. I think I'm going to give it an 8 out of 10 on the taste. Wow, I think we just had a completely different drinking experience. Immediately, my first thought was, wow, this is really watery. This is probably the thinnest whiskey I've had in the last two <laughs> full seasons of this podcast. It is like straight water, very blandly sweet. And then it hits the mid palate and it's like, hey, remember ashtrays? Remember how those used to be everywhere? <laughs> no? Well, let me reintroduce you. And it's just smoke and ash the whole rest of the way back. Not necessarily in a bad way. I know that, you know, me comparing something to licking an ashtray doesn't sound enticing, but that's scotch for you. You know, I think for me, the 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 downfall of this whiskey is that it is very divided. The front of the palate is thin and bland and the back of the palate is thin and strongly smoky. I'm only going to give this a six out of ten on the flavor, Brad. <laughs> My finish note literally reads tiny hints of peat mixed with a bit of leather and cured meat. <laughs> I don't think that this is smoky at all, Bob. Uh, like there, there was at no point of this experience where I was like, oh, this is like a nice peated scotch. Mm. Like for me, I just got a little bit of that peat smoke. And uh, honestly, my, I'll just give you my final note as well. I really genuinely feel like this is a really solid offering if you're looking to introduce someone to a peated scotch. Like it is the nicest introduction to peated scotch that I can imagine because the smoke is is just there's just a hint of smoke throughout. I will um, say the second but, sip was not as heavily smoky. Like there was a actually a little bit of like an orange creamsicle going on uh, in the back of my palate, which I really liked. There you go. But, but it is still, and I wouldn't call it peaty, Brad. I would just say it tastes kind of like I imagine uh, cigarette ash would taste. It's it's burnt, <laughs> but it's more like burnt paper or something like that. You know what I mean? It's not charred oak. It's just like something ashy. And yeah, I, I understand where you're coming from. I think if someone was going to start with peated scotch and wanted a good entry point, I would point them back one week to the 12 year. Mm -hmm. So on the finish, it's pleasant. It's not very long lasting and it's definitely not very warming on the way down. It's a very mild whiskey in that sense. I think I'll give it a six and a half on the finish. Uh, I'll give it a seven and a half on the finish. And for balance, I'll give it a seven. I think it's a little bit of a ride from from nose to finish. But for me, uh, obviously not for Bob, I thought it was a pretty fun ride. So I'll, I'll give it a seven out of ten. Yeah, the more I drink this, the more I, I, I can get down with it. It's not offensive by any stretch of the imagination. And I am getting used to that smokiness now or that kind of, you know, char ashiness now. But I just don't think it's a great whiskey. It's it's almost it kind of reminds me of the Cuddy Sark we had at the end of last season. Mm. But just like if you submerged like a, a cigar in it for a while <laughs> and if you ashed your cigar in it. Yeah, <laughs> uh, I, I'll give it a six and a half on the balance. Have you ever smoked a cigar, Bob? I tried once and then I immediately thought this is not for me. So <laughs> I'm going to stick to the whiskey. I will say I, I recently went on a trip um, to Isle Royale, which is a big old island in the middle of Lake Superior, just just north of the Upper Peninsula in Michigan. 
And uh, we smoked a cigar on the boat ride there. We smoked one up on top of the mountain, like at the highest point of the island. And like, I'm not a cigar guy. It's not my go-to thing. But it is kind of a cool thing to do when you when you're in the midst of like momentous occasions. Hmm. So that I'm 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 down with it for the momentous cigar. I'm definitely not a uh, a weekend smoker though. Random unsolicited support for smoking on this podcast. <laughs> you got it, man. <laughs> that came out of nowhere. <laughs> I was just, today, I was just today's curious, sponsor like... is Philip Morris. <laughs> Smoke up. Kid. I was just curious because we, you know, we talk about cigars and stuff when you're drinking scotch, and I was like, I don't know, has Bob actually smoked cigars? I, I genuinely didn't know. No, I am very unseasoned in that uh, that regard. Brad, what is this going to cost me <laughs> in the state of Ohio? You can't get it in the state of Ohio, Bob. Really? No. Outlawed due to too Out- much yes. cigar ash. <laughs> too much cigarette ash. As best as I can tell online, you can get it anywhere from like $32 to $45. Okay. So I I put for the Film & Whiskey podcast total $38. Yeah. Yeah. I was going to say, even if we round up to $40. Yeah. Uh, this, is not, this is not bad. And this this is right in line with a Glenn Morangy 10. The only thing is, this is not age stated. So it's definitely a blend. And I don't like it as much as Glenn Morangy 10, even though I'm not a huge fan of Glenn Morangy 10. At 40 bucks, I really don't mind this. I'm going to give it a 7 out of 10 on value. Yeah, I'm right there with you. 7 out of 10 on value. Like I said before, I, I think this is a solid introductory offering. I If you're looking to spend 40 or less, if you're looking to spend a little bit more, I, I'm with what you said, Bob. That 12-year was really, really incredible. So cough up an extra 15 bucks, get somebody to buy $15 worth of the bottle from you. Uh, and, and I would definitely recommend that Highland Park 12 over this. I'm coming out to a 33.5 out of 50. I'm at a 36.5 out of 50. Oh, wow. Okay. I thought we would be a little farther off than we were. That puts us at a 70 out of 100 or right at that 35 out of 50 mark where we typically start recommending. You know what? I will recommend try it at the bar. Try a pour of it. I don't think I'd recommend picking up a bottle unless you try it and you know that this is right up your alley. As much as it is intended, I think, to be an intro to smoky whiskey, it's just not as good as other intro to smoky whiskey whiskeys that I've had. Yeah, I'm I'm right there with you, Bob. I, I think it's worth trying at the bar. Uh, if you want to go in on a bottle with some friends, great. But just to go flat out buy a bottle, eh, you know, maybe maybe push for something a little higher quality. Yeah. All right, Brad. Wow, we were in pretty pretty solid agreement on that. Let's see if we can continue this love and goodwill as we talk about close encounters of the third kind. Has there ever been anything other than love and goodwill on this podcast, Bob? <laughs> Not for my end. <laughs> Let's get to it, Bob. All right, everybody. That was Highland Park Magnus, a whiskey that Bob and I are close to recommending really solid offering out of highland park out of the orkney islands Mm. but now it is time for two facts and a falsehood brad i keep thinking that we need to get a theme song for two facts and a falsehood and if we did like what kind of theme song should it be because i keep thinking Mm. it should be poppy and have like horns and did it about papa do you know but it, you uh, always intro it with this dark, ominous voice, so it doesn't, that doesn't I, go well just, at all. I just want the um, the Hans Zimmer, like, Batman 
type of theme song going on. <laughs> just the Inception. Wah. Wah. Two facts. Wah. And a falsehood. Perfect. All right. This is the part of the podcast where Brad tries to stump me by making up a fact about the movie. And I have to guess which of these three facts is actually a falsehood. Just to be clear, I don't make up these facts. The Internet makes them up. Sure. And the Internet is 100% trustworthy and reliable. Yeah, we are banking on two of them actually being true, which who knows? Yeah, but ostensibly two of these things are accurate (laughs) and one of them is not. Uh, Brad, you got me last week. I am 0 for 1 on the season. That's right. You are. Let's see if you can do it again. Fact number one, Stanley Kubrick. The uh, have you heard of him, Bob? Yeah, although you always say Kubrick and I don't know if is it. I think it's Kubrick. Kubrick? Kubrick? Cube? Yeah, uh, whatever. Stanley? I think it's. Uh, Kabrik. Yes, that's it. Yeah. That uh, Mr. Kabrik was so impressed with Carrie Guffey that he wanted to cast him as Danny Torrance in The Shining. However, couldn't get him due to scheduling conflicts. Hmm. Fact number two, Richard Dreyfuss uh, was approached by the producers to audition for the part of uh, Roy Neal or Neary. Sorry. Uh, But he was uninterested after reading the script. He had to be convinced by Spielberg himself to take it. Hmm. Uh, Spielberg really wanted him to take the part after having worked with him on another movie you may have heard of, Jaws. All right. Fact number three. This film is shown every single night at the Devil's Tower Koa Campground, the KOA, uh, thereby making it one of the most screened movies of all time. Wow. Huh. I want that one to be true. See, this is the thing with two facts and a falsehood is that I'm very easily manipulated. And so (laughs) I think Brad really cracked the code last week when you just inserted one that you knew I would like to hear. I don't know what you're talking about. And I I said, oh, I want that to be true. So I just didn't pick it as a falsehood. (laughs) I want three to be true. I think two probably is true because it just sounds too mundane to be false. One could also be true. But I'm going to say one is the falsehood. Fact number one, that Mr. Cubreich, uh <laughs> is actually a truth. He oh, really nice. wanted Carrie Guffey. Uh, however, apparently he was doing some uh, foreign language film. Like the, uh, the title for the the title for the movie was like like 12 Spanish words in a row. Yeah. So uh, he couldn't get him. Had to get somebody else. Uh, the falsehood here is that Dreyfus was uninterested. The truth of the matter was that Dreyfus heard uh, Spielberg talking about this movie while he was on set at Jaws and literally was like campaigning for the part ever since. And Spielberg <laughs> Spielberg wanted Steve McQueen. He wanted, um, oh, who else was it? it? It was a few other like big name actors at the time to get the part and Dreyfus like just kept wearing him down till he auditioned for it. And Spielberg was like, ah, okay, all right, you got the part. Well, it was the right decision because yeah, oh, Dreyfus 100%. is fantastic in this movie. Yes. Yep. All right. So I'm over two. And, but uh, yeah. if it makes you feel any better, th- literally every single night at the Koa campground outside of devil's tower, they play this movie. Have you ever been to devil's tower? I have not. It's really cool. We were there on my honeymoon. 
Like we didn't honeymoon oh. at Devil's Tower, but we, we took a. <laughs> what were you doing on the Devil's Tower, hey, Bob? <laughs> That's why they call it the Devil's Tower. Am I right? <laughs> no, we took a road trip out west, and that was one of the stops that we hit on the road trip. And it's really cool. And if you've seen Close Encounters, then there's no way to not associate it with that. So yeah, Dude, I get it. Speaking of uh, the trip that I went on to the island. We were up on the mountain and like looking to the north and you can see a little bit of Canada Mm -hmm. and there's a massive plateau in like the Thunder Bay, um, Canada area that literally looks almost exactly like Devil's Tower. Hmm. I, as they showed it in this movie, I was like, holy crap, that like literally looks spot on for what I saw when I was standing on that mountain. It was crazy. Well, you know, come for the whiskey. Stay for the explanation of geographic rock formations. That's right. That's what, that's what we're here for. <laughs> Bob and I are actually geologists. Yes. Uh, that's what our master's degree was in. Ge- geologic. That's I would say geographic. <laughs> that tells you how much I know about rocks. <laughs> All right. Are you a cartographer or a geologist? <laughs> Let's get back into the movie. And I want to talk about Spielberg because the thing I love about Spielberg is I love that, that you. I love that you're like, let's get back into the movie. By talking about the director and his life. (laughs) The thing I love about Spielberg is that he is so easy to psychoanalyze. Like, you don't really have to look very far to figure out what's driving Spielberg. And I don't say that entirely to be facetious. It is really easy to see that, especially in this stretch of his career, he is still dealing with the childhood trauma of his parents' divorce. We talked a little bit about this on the E.T. podcast, but uh, his his parents divorced when he was, I think, like 10 years old. He was old enough that it really shattered him. And he blamed his father for a really long time. And it turns out he found out way down the road, basically, that it was actually his mom that had fallen in love with somebody else and that his dad really fell on the sword and let his kids hate him and think that it was his fault because he didn't want his mom to go through that. And so at this stage of his life, Spielberg is still estranged from his father. He doesn't really find out the truth until he's like in his 40s. And it is really interesting to see how Spielberg works through the father-son dynamics, especially because I think, Brad, what he's trying to do with this movie is find a way to understand and forgive his dad for leaving. Because... What what happens with Roy Neary's character at the end of this movie doesn't make a lot of sense, and it certainly doesn't seem like something that you would want your protagonist to do otherwise. Yeah, I mean, he just randomly kisses another woman and then abandons his family because he's more <laughs> interested in something else. Based on the story you just told me, I, I don't know where he would have gotten right? those ideas. Where from. would he have invented this from? <laughs> that's what I'm saying. It's like that's the only way that it really makes sense. And Spielberg has gone on record and said, you know, if he could do it all again, he wouldn't have Neri get on the ship at the end of the movie and 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 leave his family. And so I kind of wonder when I watch this movie, is Roy Neary a stand in for Spielberg himself? Is it this sense of childlike wonder mm. and awe that he that he wants to escape the situation or that he feels uh, called away and that he is, you know what I mean? Like he sees in the, the aliens, the idea of this other race that's out there, something to aspire to, or is it just him like 
trying to find a one to one correlation to his dad and invent a scenario where like his dad can still be the good guy and also abandon his family. You know, it, like it's got to be one of those two. And I think part of the the flaw with the script is that I can't really get a grasp on who he's supposed to be in Spielberg's, you know, psyche. I, I just feel like there's there's this inner hope in Spielberg in all of his movies that he really believes that things are going to work out in the end. Mm-hmm. And that even when, you know, Dreyfus abandons his family, it's for a greater cause. It's 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 for humanity to try and grow as a race by interacting with this civilization, right? Because yeah. the army has set these people up to go on the ship and do, you know, do science and relations with the aliens to try and understand them and build like you know, good positive feelings so they don't don't destroy us. Like, and he's a part of that. And 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 maybe my dad was trying to do something better with his life too. Yeah. Um, but I don't know. I don't know, Bob. You're clearly the one with a super healthy father son relationship. Uh, so you tell me, like, how would you feel if that was your dad out there getting on an alien ship? Well, I thought you meant <laughs> you were saying if my dad did what Spielberg's dad did. I was like, I, I don't know how I would react to that, Brett. <laughs> no, if your dad was Roy Neary. You know, I don't I don't know. That's the thing is like it, Spielberg is clearly not thinking through this. And this is I think I told you this before we watched the movie that this is the kind of film you make as a 25 year old or however old Spielberg was here, where you think you're getting at something bigger and you're asking the bigger questions and you just haven't lived enough life yet to really make the deep points that you think you're making. And that's not to say that, that this movie is pretentious. I don't mean any of that. It's just that I think there's a way to tell the story Spielberg's trying to tell here and even hit the notes of, you know, abandonment issues and child of divorce in a way that doesn't ultimately make your protagonist abandon his family at the end of the movie. It's it's a young man really trying to find a way to like poetically speak about what happened to him, but it just doesn't make a lot of sense on screen. And I think it's also him yearning for his childhood again cuz the the inspiration for this script was actually when his parents, when he was young, like five or six years old, his parents woke him up in the middle of the night, shoved him in a car, drove for like 30 minutes, and they actually watched a meteor shower like with a bunch of other people who all showed up at like two or three in the morning to watch this meteor shower. And that like memory was so strongly implanted upon him that it led to him writing this script. Mm -hmm. And so I wonder if he was using it as an opportunity to explore like, this was a time before my parents were broken and what happened to lead to the breaking. And there's probably some level of like it. The reasons my dad had for leaving my mom were so foreign to me as a child. They may have been aliens. Mm -hmm. And it feels like that's like the entire idea of the script. So this is where I'm going to insert a clip that I just sent to you. It's one of my favorite, favorite moments with Spielberg. And it's when he was on Inside the Actors Studio with James Lipton. And they're talking about the end of this movie. Your father was a computer scientist. Your mother was a musician. When the spaceship lands, how do they communicate? That's a very good question. I like that. (laughs) You've answered the question. 
They make music on their computers and they are able to speak to each other. You see, I'd love to say, you know, I intended that and I realized that was my mother and father, but not until this moment. (laughs) And man, if that isn't just the best piece of film criticism I've ever heard. Like Spielberg didn't even realize that what he was doing because it was so subconscious. But that's what's going on here. He's saying mom and dad, you can still find a way to communicate with each other. And gosh, I just, you know, I watch these movies and I just want to give the guy a hug. And I appreciate an artist being so kind of vulnerable. Yes. Nakedly transparent about what's going on, you know, in his in his psyche. And for all the flaws of this movie, I can't help but love it because of what's going on underneath the surface here. I feel like his counselor probably has like the best job in the world where like his movie comes out and like they sit down for a session. He's like, so (laughs) I uh, saw Close Encounters of Third Kind last weekend. Spielberg's like, oh, yeah, what'd you think? Let's get started. Yeah. Anything you want to talk about? Uh, there's actually a really there's a documentary that came out a few years ago called Spielberg, where he just talks about all the movies that he made. And he actually oh, what's says, it about? Yeah, I know. Right. And he actually says, I never went to therapy. I just made movies instead. <laughs> <laughs> and it became the little screenshot of him saying that became a meme on Twitter. You know, they they always talk about how like men will do literally blah, 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 instead of talking about the feelings yeah and it was like men will literally make five of the best movies of all time instead of going to therapy (laughs) (laughs) all right brad i think that we've talked enough about the movie i would like to hear your final score i really like this movie even for the fact that there is some swing and miss elements to it i i kind of like it more than jaws if i'm being honest it's not as good as jaws but i think it's more meaningful in a lot of ways than jaws I man, I'm I'm kind of hovering around a seven and a half to an eight. Mm-hmm. I think, hmm, I think I'm going to give it a seven and a half. The, there's just too much pacing issues. the The story just isn't interesting enough in the end. There, there's like zero payoff. Um, and and I think that's kind of what you get for making a horror movie that turns out happy. And I honestly, if here you go, I'm going to give E.T. some props. I think he learned his lesson because in E.T., the horror element of the movie lasts for 10 minutes, Mm -hmm. 20 minutes. Mm -hmm. And then you get into like this cool little alien that hangs out with you. Yeah. And so I, I do think that he he struggled in this film with like he builds up this terrifying alien presence and then it's absolutely nothing and and it's kind of confusing and you, you don't really know what's going on and the man the final 10 20 minutes of the movie the, it's it's rough man there's people like walking out of the ship uh, and even before that there's like four or five little ships flying around and then the mothership comes yeah. and and you know uh Roy is like I I got to go down there and and Jill is like no I'm not going down there but then she comes down anyways and well for me it's the fact that they they have this like group of people that they all come out in their red jumpsuits like they're they're being sent to go on the ship and then the aliens come and only pick Neri but yeah. it all happens within like 10 seconds see they come out they line up the aliens are just kind of like marching around their waistline and then all of a sudden they're they're grabbing Roy he's off into the ship and it goes up into the sky and the movie's over and it's 
I didn't have time to catch my bearings about what was going on. Mm-hmm. And and so it's this weird mishmash of they really stretched that ending out. But then the most crucial element was rushed through in a way that was almost incoherent. Yeah. Yep. And it, it's all of those issues paired with other problems I had throughout the movie that make me go, you know, I really like this movie. I like the psychoanalysis that you can do with it that Spielberg like gives his audience permission to do. Um, but overall, I, I think it's a subpar offering from a, a stunningly Hall of Fame level career that Spielberg has. What's the better movie between this and E.T.? Ooh, I would say this one. Mm. I mean, yeah, I, hard disagree, but sure. Yeah, I, I think that E.T. Hmm. I think that this one is just more interesting because it actually is interesting. Mm-hmm. Uh, E.T. just struggles on a lot of different levels, Bob. We don't need to get into it. We we're, don't. We're having, we don't. We're Let's, I just night. wanted to see if you were going to change your mind on <laughs> E.T. And I, I struck out again. All right. So I've been hovering between an eight and a half and a nine. Nine seems too high. Eight and a half seems like it was a good movie that I liked. But I do think that it it gets at more. And it is really well made. The filmmaking craft here is impeccable. I do think I'm going to give it a nine, but it's like a nine with a little asterisk next to it, if that makes sense. That'll bring our score out to an 8.25 out of 10, which I think is a good middle ground for this movie. It is objectively a good movie, a very good movie. It's just not quite on the level of Spielberg's very, very best. Do you like this or Jaws better? I like this better. But Jaws is a better movie. Yeah. yeah. I don't know if that I, makes I, sense. No, it totally does. I like Jaws better, but I'm with you in saying that like Jaws is just a better, uh, probably edited movie. Mm-hmm. All right. We'd like to know what you think. Have you seen Close Encounters? Have you revisited it lately? We would. I'd really encourage you to because I got a lot more out of it this time. We'd love to know what you think. You can reach out to us on our social media accounts on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram at Film Whiskey. Or you can jump onto our Discord. We are on there every single day talking to you, the fans of the Film and Whiskey podcast. So jump on there. You can find a link to our Discord at the end of every single one of our show notes. Next week, we'll be back with the 1981 masterpiece Raiders of the Lost Ark. Until then. (laughs) Until then, I'm Bob Book. I'm Brad G. And we'll see you next time. 